Hey everyone, this is Ann Greeny, and welcome to Capital Connections. In this podcast, we will talk to successful investors and entrepreneurs about the state of their industry and how their network influenced their success. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to key decision makers and auto-populating their pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, this is Ann Carini, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Capital Connections. I'm really excited for our guest. He was on the founding team at Linden Labs, the creators of Second Life. Then he joined Google in 2003, managing product for AdSense. And after Google's acquisition of YouTube, he led customer product management. He now is a founding partner at Homebrew. Homebrew is a seed stage venture firm providing capital and assistance to entrepreneurs who are building the companies that they envision within the bottom-up economy. Some notable investments are Plaid, Cruise, Shield AI, and a personal favorite, The Skim. Hunter Walk, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I, I was going through all the different podcasts that you've been on, and there was one piece of your career that I haven't heard you talk about. So you actually started your career on the set of Conan O'Brien in the 90s. How did that happen? Well, first, let me apologize for you having to listen to me on all these podcasts. Uh, <laughs> It's true. I so um, I had a cable access TV show when I was in college, and um, it sort of felt like if I was going to try out the minor leagues, then I should try out the major leagues. And so um, I had interned at NBC earlier during my college years um, on more of like the ad side. Um, but I used that relationship to kind of knock on some doors and say, "Hey." can I work uh, on a TV show essentially like three days a week while I finish up my senior year of college? And um, they said, sure. And I said, well, how about Saturday Night Live? They said no um, and gave me the choice of two television shows. One that was sort of an afternoon talk show that I think was you know, for the older set. Um, so I passed on that. And the other was this show that was on at 1.30 in the morning. I t- you know, taped, taped earlier, but 1.30 in the morning. And um, was only on like 12 week renewal cycles at the point. So they uh, told me I could choose it, but it wasn't even clear that it was going to be um, like renewed through my, the entirety of my senior year. So like, good luck, you know, it might not, (laughs) you know, you might not even be able to do this. Um, But of course, you know, as the story gets told now 20, however many, 20 years later, Conan O'Brien still, still going in some form. Um, I had the chance to work in the research team over there. And essentially that meant, I kind of call it manufacturing spontaneity. So I'd research celebrity guests. Um, if they had appeared on the show before, rewatch that interview, kind of note what worked, what didn't work. Um, was there like a particular callback, you know, to something yeah. that they did that we should do? And then, you know, drafted kind of the interview questions that I'd work with the segment producer. Um, so and then, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I actually started my career at Paramount Pictures in the entertainment industry and pivoted out to tech and I know that you uh, you made a pivot to management consulting, got your MBA, and then you ended up at Linden Labs. Uh, talk us through how how you ended up there. Uh, was that through? Were you working with some of the founders at, at Stanford yeah. when you're getting your MBA? Yeah, sure. To be honest, like I should have stayed on Conan in some ways, like in the sense that 
even though I'm happy with the way everything worked out, the decision I made to not stay on Conan was a decision that was um, not consistent with the way that I like uh, ended up realizing I wanted to steer my career, which was about things I was passionate about rather than things that were pragmatic. And so then going and doing management consulting was kind of like pragmatic. And I very quickly realized that I um, didn't want to spend my career as a management consultant. Um, Finding the, the team doing uh, Second Life, the, the team at Lindenland uh, in 2000, actually came out of um, some work I had done the summer before, summer 1999, during my MBA internship summer. I had always wanted to work for a toy company. Um, so I went down to LA and worked at Mattel Toys, um, specifically for their interactive group, um, which was at the time trying to figure out kind of like a buy, build, or partner strategy for console gaming. Um, they had done some PC gaming, but not really gotten into the consoles. And so living with that team for the summer, I started to see how dramatic the, um, the internet and connectivity and community was going to be to gameplay, that it wasn't just gonna be about, you know, buying, buying somebody else's game and playing through it as an individual, but it was gonna be about people sort of coming for the game, but staying for the community. And so, um, I ended up through some friends that I made uh, at Stanford getting connected to the founder, Philip Rosedale of, um, of Second Life, and um, just encountered like a really weird, wonderful, smart team um, based out of an alleyway in Hayes Valley here in San Francisco. Um, and it just seemed like a place that I wanted to be. Uh, it was also spring of 2000, which essentially meant like I was graduating into the web 1.0, um, you know, sort of burst, which also made it easy to make like, a pure choice because some of the other things that you know you might expect MBAs to go into coming right out of um, grad school um, were you know sort of a little more muted or hiring freezes or things like that. So I didn't have any stability to tempt me. I went straight for what I thought was most interesting. And Second Life, I did a lot of research coming. I, I worked in the gaming world after, and especially on the MMO side. Mm, yeah. Second Life really was revolutionary in a lot of ways. And for people who don't fully understand, I know some of the, the youngins might not. So can you explain a little bit about why Second Life was so uh, just fascinating at the time and really why it set the groundwork for so many other things in the future? Yeah, you can kind of, I mean, sort of its lineage, I think you can, you know, not to say that these people were directly influenced by, by Second Life, but if you, if you trace its sort of family tree, I think you get very quickly to Minecraft and Roblox and that type of stuff where it's the idea that um, you have a world that's sort of editable, uh, you know, via, via code that you can um, come into this sort of simulated environment and not just like play somebody else's game, but build objects, you know, design your clothing um, using in-world tools like, you know, a code editor, uh, a graphic modeler, but also create things offline, like open up Photoshop, you know, oh, you saw somebody wear an awesome dress, you know, in a music video, like go make it in Photoshop, upload it and your avatar can actually wear it. And even cooler in Second Life, you can actually make it you know, available for sale um, right. and there's this virtual economy. And so it was just this idea, you know, that um, almost inspired maybe like by Burning Man in some ways that uh, you could um, create this, this space that um, resembled the real world, but was not necessarily, um, uh, you know, uh, limited by all the constraints we have. Uh, physically and um, create these sort of simulated environments that were shared and or private. So you could like go and get your own private island and invite people onto it and do whatever you wanted to do. Um, so it was kind of interesting. You know, I think that was the purity of that vision was ultimately part of the problem in the sense that like it turns out to be a world really for kind of 
builders and hardcore socializers rather than um, you know the broader population of just casual game players or um, people who just like to chat. And so um, you know it's still around. It's a profitable you know profitable startup. Um, uh, that, uh, you know, which is hard, you know, imagine after 20 years, um, it, yeah. you know, it, it's just, you know, communities that you build are sort of hard to kill, but yeah. despite, you know, a burst really of like, um, press attention and mostly after I left, um, I was there for about three years that, you know, sort of wondered whether it was going to become the 3d internet or so on and so forth. It never really got past sort of this half million million kind of like subscriber level, but, you know, people were paying real money for it. And so over time, you know, you kind of had this, you know, like small, small virtual world running off, well, you know, in the in, in San Francisco um, that uh, that some people would spend more time in, frankly, than like, you know, their day jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I found so interesting that you touched on is they actually created their own economy with like Linden dollars. This was prior to to Bitcoin. And, right. and um, you think you would think that I would have been then like an early Bitcoin guy who was like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> this is Linden dollars. Let me buy all these things at a tenth of a cent. But I actually wasn't. I was intrigued by Bitcoin. But what I thought coming from Second Life was I thought that the virtual currencies that would gain initial traction um, would be tied to identity. So not tied to uh, tied to a, a visible identity. So part of the Part of the reputation score was going to be you were you knew you were interacting with Hunter Walk, not with sort of you know just a wallet number or things like that. I thought, um, and I thought they were going to be issued by um, platforms that were also making a market for them. So more like the original notion of Facebook credits, maybe where um, you know they they worked with their advertisers uh, and partners to allow you to use Facebook credits to like rent you know and stream Batman or things like that, so that yeah. there would immediately be a critical mass of um, uh, you know goods and service providers to transact with um, versus obviously the more peer-to-peer -peer way that um, that Bitcoin itself has developed. So I missed out on the chance to be uh, to be a crypto billionaire, despite um, having worked in virtual currencies um, before. I guess you know ninety nine point nine percent of the world. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people kick themselves for it. It looks it looks so easy in hindsight. Um, but yeah, the, the actually creating this maker's economy was really interesting if, at, at, uh, in Second Life. And I know that you took some of that and your, you know, your career followed. You worked at Google in 2003, uh, which is incredible because it's the earliest stage. How big was Google in 2003? Oh, it was already, I mean, it was already considerable. It was about a thousand people. So okay. um, yeah, no, if it was like, a hundred people, we wouldn't be talking. Like, why would I be like working anymore? <laughs> You'd own an island somewhere. I, yeah, often. I would be in Second Life. Um, no, <laughs> I um, I I. So for me, the Second Life and then AdSense at Google and then YouTube after Google purchased them, the the connective tissue there was all about this idea of um, software technology helps people create. It helps people create within community for both audience and collaboration. And then that um, the the platforms that help the creation. I think also have a responsibility slash opportunity to, to help with the economics so that creators, if they so desire, can, can make money off their creativity. And so what attracted me to Google at the time was um, really the beginning of AdSense. The idea that uh, as you know, um, early 2000s was the rise of the blogs, the rise of the ability for you know, somebody who wasn't a media company to spin up a website and, and, and attract you know, more ongoing audience than um, you know, teams of people working out of offices in New York or LA. And uh, largely though, they didn't have great ways to monetize that traffic as they're, you know, 
hosting bills, other things, just, you know, they wanted to put more time into it. They had to, you know, put pop, put bad ad networks on, right? Like irrelevant or, you know, user abusive type of stuff. And Google had, um, was just de debuting, you know, this contextual ad product called AdSense that was very much about, um, you know, put some JavaScript on your site. It will match the right ads uh, to the content. And, uh, you know, they're small little text ads. They don't get in anybody's way. They don't obfuscate what people came there for. But the relevance is what will make people want to click on them. And when they click on them, the majority of the revenue will go to, you know, to you, you know, Mr. or Mrs. You know, blogger. And, um, and, you know, we'll take a little bit for operating the network. And I just thought that was a really elegant, interesting um, opportunity. And, and ultimately, you know, even though um, AdSense did and does work with some of the, you know, largest, uh, you know, websites in the world, that it was going to be a really interesting level playing field where all of a sudden you could be a media company without ever having to buy, you know, a suit and tie. Um, and so that's what attracted me. And I got to see, you know, during the three years that I was in Mountain View, three, three and a half years, two important things happened. First, I met Sacha, my partner at Homebrew. And second, um, I got to see it scale, you know, Google scale from about a thousand people to 15,000 people. Um, and, uh, and knew that 15,000 people was too much for me. Um, so I, then I got lucky um, and had the chance to go over to YouTube right when that got acquired, which was only 65 people. So I sort of got to restart, you know, if Linden Lab was about going from sort of, you know, let's call it zero to 50 and uh, people. And uh, second, um, Google for me was about going from, you know, the thousand to 10,000, 15,000. Um, YouTube was then sort of, you know, the 50 to thousand journey. Um, uh, it was actually, I think, bigger than that when I left, but like, um, allowed me to see all different parts of, you know, sort of scaling, scaling companies and ultimately figure out which one I loved the most, which was, you know, the earliest stages. Yeah. And the, the whole monetization piece. And I think, you know, what you were doing at YouTube, similar to AdSense, similar to even Second Life of allowing people not to have to be work with huge production companies to actually make money off of videos. Absolutely. And that maker's founders, economy yeah. has grown so much. It's so fantastic. To the founder's credit, that was always something that Steve and Chad, um, you know, thought deeply about. Um, it wasn't just sort of an add-on when Google told us to make money. You know, Chad in particular um, really wanted the, the level playing field of creators to amass, you know, if you could amass a TV-sized audience, you should be able to make TV-sized dollars. Um, and that comes with its own challenges, but I think it's a, I think it's like, the right principle to shoot for. And um, so in some ways, uh, you know, YouTube, especially at that stage of development, I think YouTube was perfect for me and I was perfect for YouTube. Um, I had the sort of, you know, traditional, at least had tasted some traditional media experience with, you know, being inside of NBC for ad sales and Conan O'Brien. Um, I had, um, you know, grown up kind of web native with creators, you know, Second Life, Ad AdSense. And I had been at Google for a few years, so I kind of knew how to get stuff done um, being part of, you know, sort of that machine, um, but also kind of went native at YouTube. So I wasn't the Google guy who, you know, was placed at YouTube to try to keep them, keep them in line. I was sort of more the YouTube guy that just happened to get hired, you know, post acquisition. Right, right, right. And so after that, you decided to go to Homebrew. You, you alluded, obviously, your partner, Satya, who I've had a chance to meet, is a fantastic human. You guys met. He, he went off to Twitter after Google, correct? Or... Uh, with an intermediary stop. He, went, he was a partner over at Battery Ventures for about four years. Oh, so he's done, yeah, he's done venture, had, prior to Homebrew, had done venture twice in his career. Um, so he'd went, gone back and forth between product and venture um, you know, for 10, 15 years. 
And we had always, when, when we sort of parted ways at the beginning of 2007, he goes over to Battery, I go over to YouTube. Um, we knew that we'd always wanted to work together again. Um, we didn't know exactly what that meant or when it would happen. But yeah, he went to Battery for four years and then ran product at Twitter for about a year and a half. I, I, and that when he left there in sort of middle of 2012, I was starting to think about leaving Google at the end of the year. And, but I wasn't planning to jump into anything specific. I was going to take 2013 and kind of continue doing some angel investing, continue working on some side projects. Um, but um, when he freed up, all of a sudden we had the chance to start with that blank sheet of paper. And we didn't, we didn't begin by saying, oh my goodness, it's time to raise a venture fund. Um, we actually started by talking about, hey, I still wanna work hard, you wanna work hard, you know, sort of like a values-based discussion, what yeah. makes you happy, what does success look like? And then once we had identified that, um, we started working through, well, what should we do together? There's things that we're both interested in that the other one's not as interested in, and so let's not force it. Let's, you know, we've decided that what we're trying to do is figure out what we should work on, not one person convincing the other. And um, that's where uh, Homebrew came about pretty quickly um, because we both realized that we had enjoyed kind of these years zero through five of companies right. most in our careers, both you know inside org chart or on cap table. And we also felt like that there was a real, um, while there was more and more money being made available for early stage founders, um, often that money was taking sort of the shape of the needs of the capital rather than the needs of the entrepreneur, which is to say, um, larger and larger funds um, that were you know, either also investing early stage as part of their full stack strategy, or um, had started out very small, but through success and their own ambition were now becoming the types of larger funds that um, you know, would, would be putting teams in between the partner and the entrepreneur right. rather than you know, concentrating their time with them. And you know, fund, size, fund size is strategy, right? So if you're sort of investing out of larger and larger funds, it means different things for what you sort of um, how you define success. Um, and we think you need to give founders that optionality as long as possible. So we sort of um, looked at it as, hey, let's do a very like old school version of this, which is just the two of us, um, you know, small team behind us, but like really just a small partnership that um, only makes eight to 10 investments a year and then works really closely with those companies seed to series B. Um, and we don't have to be all things to all people, um, but we think we fill a gap in the market um, based upon that working style and sort of the, the, um, the fact that we come, you know, came from the operating backgrounds and, but also weren't, um, especially given Sacha's experience, weren't naive or new to the venture world or the relationships right. in the venture world, um, or what it meant to be a portfolio manager. So, um, that's why we also decided to be sort of institutionally backed from our first fund. So we started yeah. off with great endowments, foundations, um, sort of backing us. And that gave us the you know, the dry powder slash gravitas to be able to go and, you know, write sizable checks um, to play a more traditional lead or co-lead in these rounds. So we're now eight years in investing out of our third fund. Um, I'm very proud of the impact that we've made um, and relationships we've built with the, with the companies that we back. Unfortunately, you know, we're far enough in that you can start to see some results from fund one, and that looks like it's going to be a really great fund. But I, I, you know, I believe venture capital at the end of the day is just a, just a tool that entrepreneurs, you know, can make use of if they want. Um, and it's not, you know, it's a, it's not a Swiss army knife, you know, it's, it's a one very specific tool. So, um, you know, we try to, as best we can, you know, help find people who we think it's going to be the right, you know, risk capital for, and then, you know, help them figure out whether they should stay on that path or not. There's lots of great right. companies that get built without having to be dependent upon four to eight rounds of venture capital. Right. Um, but then also when they are, you know, when they are on that path, um, you know, help them build something that they're going to be very, very proud of. That's, you know, sort of bigger 
than they even expected. And, you know, like I said, fund one, we have some companies that have sort of reached those milestones, you know, Chime, Plaid, Gusto, things like that. So it's really exciting to see these, you know, um, uh, you know, founders grow up, you know, in the way yeah. of becoming real leaders, in some cases, maybe, you know, even leaders of public companies one day. Yeah. And you, I, I heard a quote that you'd said about, you know, how people actually find you because for an earlier stage um, investment firm where you aren't one of the larger names, um, I believe you said it's like you have to kind of find the, the needle in the haystack and you're providing, you're actually building the magnets mm -hmm. to extract them from all the noise that's out there. Yeah. Um, and I know that one of the things is you have a massive Twitter following and you are active on social channels. How do you think of those? How do those things play into how you and your team try to attract the yeah. best talent? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that there's a compounding value on brand effect, which even if it's not, you know, staffing a 12 person comms team to like place our, you know, to ghostwrite our editorials or whatever, that type of stuff. Um, the most important compounding brand effect happens upon co-investors and founders. And so I think that like, even if we're not a mainstream brand in terms of, let's say like um, networking, you know, spending 50% of our time networking with like VPs at, you know, large CPG companies or things like that, I do feel very confident in our brand awareness and strength amongst the segments that matter most um, for where we invest, which is the entrepreneurial community um, and, you know, other angel investors and things like that. Um, that being said, you get up every day and you sort of know that there's people out there who are going to be building companies who either, you know, don't know of you or have heard of you, but like you need to climb up their preference stack to make sure that, you know, they want to find you or are open to you finding them. Um, in terms of my own, you know, brand building or, you know, sort of social strategies, like I'm essentially just doing the same things I did before homebrew, um, just without the rate limiting effect of, you know, being with inside a company like Google and thus, you know, um, always wanted to make sure that I never put the, you know, company in a, in a, in a, in a tough position. Um, that's not to say that I do anything now that I think's, you know, like, uh, you know, more radical or irresponsible or whatever. It's just like when you're at Google, there's, you know, if you comment about anything, there's somebody waiting to sort of write the headline that's like Google executive says, you know, yeah. like, like I was Larry Page or something, you know, all of a sudden talking about, you know, the iPhone. Um, and now I can, I don't have to worry about that. I can, you know, Sach and I trust one another and we have um, strong feelings about the work we do, about, you know, um, about the, about the world outside of tech and our responsibilities in it. And so, um, I just think of it as a way to um, share some things I've learned, which is great, hopefully. Um, learn when, I, when there's something I'm trying to figure out. And if I can just be, um, I guess, two things. One, accessible. Like, mm -hmm. folks don't need a warm intro to find me. Um, they can send me emails, let alone, you know, sort of hit me up, you know, on any of the social platforms. Um, but also maybe a little bit of mutual self-selection, right? So, like, it's okay. Um, I don't mind if there's people who say, oh, you know what, I don't want my VC to like have an opinion on politics, you know, um, publicly, you know, for whatever reason, like I, I invest in people all the time that have different opinions than I do. It's not, a, it's not like the, I'm looking for, you know, woke founders. Um, but the, but the idea that if somebody has like strongly held convictions about what they want their investor to be, I rather they figure that out up front, um, you know, so that they can focus their time um, so I, I, you know, see, it's the duality of like, I'm always concerned about people not liking me for the wrong reasons, but I'm not concerned about people like not liking me for the right ones. Um, yeah. 
Your and, Twitter um, account is and, really an open book. Of, and it's a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. Uh, yeah you, you know, people, you always want to, you know, I, you know, people will sometimes say like, oh, I follow you on Twitter. I feel like I know you. And like, it's, what's interesting is they do in the sense of I'm not, it's not one, it's not, there's not a public hunter and a private hunter. But I do think it's important that even when we're talking to founders about potentially investing, that they spend the time to um, get to know us outside of, you know, sort of the one-to-many social aspects. So, you know, obviously a lot of these deals are moving quickly. We want to move quickly. But one of the things that we both want to walk away from mutually in sort of a, you know, in a fundraise process is, do we have a sense of what it would feel like to work together? Not just you pitch me and I pitch you and you know, like, that we reference well and you reference well and that type of stuff. But like, have we had, you know, one or two interactions amongst all these conversations where it sort of felt like we just sat down and talked about something, you know, relevant to your product, your experience as a founder, you know, the type of CEO you want to be. Um, because in reality, for the next three to five years, the conversations we have are going to look much more like that than one of us, right. you know, sort of thumbing through a PowerPoint um, and the other person firing questions. Like, um, and I think that sometimes gets lost in the, in, it should be, I think, the, I think, do we know what it feels like to work together should always be one of the goals of a funding process. Um, and, you know, we try to make sure when we're writing the check, that's the case. And then as our companies move forward and do their A round, their B round and so on and so forth, um, we try to stress that as well. That's, yeah, I think that you guys do a, a tremendous job and you have built such an incredible reputation in only, what is that, eight, eight years since you guys have been investing. Yeah. Um, so a couple quick questions in the interest of time. Sure. Uh, first off, are there any books that you recommend um, either entrepreneurs read or uh, uh, others that are investing in early stage? Two books, uh, Harold and the Purple Crayon. It's a children's book. It's my favorite book. <laughs> It's about a little kid who's got a crayon and he draws the world around him. It's my best, it's the best metaphor for creativity and that, that I think. Uh, I think I'm going to get a Harold tattoo at some point. Um, the second book um, is a book called Influence by uh, Robert Cialdini, which I think is, it's just another sort of, you know, book about um, how we, you know, decision biases and things like that. I think um, at the end of the day, like we're all humans. And so we, we get impacted, you know, by the world around us, positive and negatively. And I think some of these books are like, guidebooks to understand hidden biases and like what confuses your decision making. Uh, sometimes people look at the, read these things and like, this is either a manual for good or evil. Like these things could be used in very different ways. You know, the, just the idea of like, if I said, for example, like, and you're a good person, right? And you'd be like, yeah, I'm a good person. I'd be like, well, good people give to charity. Would you like to donate $50? Like the, the response rate to an interaction like that will be markedly higher because I primed you as you know, creating an identity that then I'm going to exploit, right? I mean, in this case, for a good reason, hopefully charity. But like, I love books like that. I, you know, I was a history major uh, and liberal arts guy. And so I find humans to be like really, really interesting. And um, so those would be my two books. Awesome. Uh, and uh, did you have any mentors along the way that really helped you in your career? I didn't have any mentors. I have a lot of, I, mentor is a weird word for me. It's, it's like one, I know it's a great word, but like, I always feel like I have role models. I have people who um, I was able to see what they were doing and how they conducted themselves and look at bits and pieces of that and say, oh, that's, that's for me, this is for me, that's for me. And I also had people who um, bet on me prematurely, who um, invited, me, you know, invited me to the event, made the introduction, spent time with me, um, even though there was no like, immediate transactional reason to do yeah. so. And so, um, you know, I try to do both of those in, in a pay it forward motion, like 
I'm, it's hard for me to be somebody's mentor, but I'm happy to be somebody's role model. And I try to be open enough about successes, failures, all these things to allow people to pick and choose um, what they think is useful to them. And then I definitely try to sort of find people who I think um, are, you know, not yet, not, don't yet have access to all the wonderful things that I have access to. And if they're the type of people who with just, you know, a little bit of help here and there, they're gonna just make such, a, such an impact upon this world. Um, there's nothing better than vouching for somebody um, who then, you know, turns into an amazing person. So I'm, I'm always happy to do that. Well, awesome. Thank you, Hunter, so much for taking the time. Yeah, if people absolutely. want to want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, go on any social platform, except maybe Parler. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just Hunter Walk. And um, HunterWalk at homebrew.co. I mean, our emails are on our website. So um, I try to um, respond at least once to, to anything. Um, um, again, because I think like that's part of the community aspect. Homebrew is named after the Homebrew Computer Club in some ways, which was, you know, a group of PC enthusiasts who gathered on Stanford's campus, you know, in the 70s and 80s. And that's where actually Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak met and that type of stuff. And so we try to embody the spirit of we're a community before, you know, before and above any of the sort of commercial intent. That's great. And you have an incredible newsletter. We'll put the links to those as well. Okay. Um, well, Hunter, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for tuning in. That does it for another episode of Capital Connections. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tap the subscribe button and give us a rating. This podcast was produced by Affinity Senior Growth Manager, Faison Medi. Music was produced by Affinity's Engineering Manager, Rohan Sahai. This podcast was brought to you by Affinity. Affinity helps teams manage and grow their networks by unlocking introductions to decision makers and auto-populating pipelines to increase deal flow. Affinity's patented technology structures and analyzes millions of data points across emails, calendar, and third-party sources to offer you the tools you need to discover untapped opportunities. In industries where success is contingent upon maintaining high-touch relationships, Affinity allows you to get deeper insights into your network and finally eliminate manual data entry. To learn more, visit us at affinity.co or email us at marketing at affinity.co. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.